the National Archives podcast series. This talk is from our Big Ideas series and is called Datification, Distribution and the Future of Archival Science. It is presented by Victoria Lemieux. This talk was recorded on the 24th of April 2018 at the National Archives, Q. Thank you so much, Irini. So I hope, uh, I think um, it's coming through loud and clear, so I hope everyone in the back can hear me. So thank you very much for the invitation to come here. Anna, I think, will be joining us later, and, uh, and John. And it's so wonderful to see uh, colleagues here um, and, and friends uh, from the, the UK archival community. Uh, great to be amongst you. And I only wish that it was, uh, wasn't such a short flying visit that I'm making. So um, as Irene was mention, mentioning, I'm going to speak about three things. I'm going to speak about uh, datification, distribution, and um, the future of archival science in the age of Homo Deus. And hopefully all, all of that will unfold and make sense uh, as I move through the talk. So the first thing is datification. So datification, what, uh, what is that? Well, I define it as a process of atomization of the components of records to enable transformation and uh, manipulation of, of data. So um, it's become very important in this day and age because it's said nowadays that data is the new oil. And uh, for a number of years, we've been witnessing the unfolding of a world in which human communication enabled economic life, but was not itself an economic commodity. Uh, and don't stare at that for too long because it'll make your eyes bug out. <laughs> but uh, you're going to have to stare for, for a while. Uh, to a world in which um, human communication has become a prime commodity. So we need to look no further than the recent Facebook Cambridge Analytica debacle for evidence of this new reality, uh, which is touching both uh, Canada where I come from and of course here in the UK. So how did we get here? I would argue that it's the natural outcome of what I call a process of datification, as I've defined it. This process began at the moment that computers started to be used to process information. Computational processing of information enabled then and continues to enable great efficiencies in information processing. It's faster than its predecessor, human information um, processed by, by orders of magnitude, and as a medium of communication, it enables much greater compression of space and time relative to its most immediate precursor, paper. These capabilities have unleashed a great wave of human innovation, as I'm sure um, many of you would appreciate and um, will uh, get more of a sense of uh, in an upcoming workshop on computational archival science, and things like big data analytics have been enabled by this process of datification. Um, in order to realize these astounding achievements, previously paper-based communications, i.e. records, uh, had to be rendered in machine processable form. Records, the form and content of which were previously fixed, needed to be unfixed. What was once an immutable object needed to be transformed into a mutable object. 
This was achieved by converting the fixed elements of records into machine-readable format, i.e. into a series of machine-interpretable ones and zeros, bits and bytes. In short, records became data. They were datafied. As soon as records were datafied, all of these ones and zeros could be processed, edited, recombined, and re-rendered into new information products, such as the outputs of big data analytics. And I've looked at that in uh, reference to my research on information visualization and visual analytics, one published in the Records Management Journal a few years ago, looking at the process by which data are, um, you know, records are transformed into data and pre-processed is the, the term often given. It's also enabled new data-centric business models and the rise of centralized platforms like Facebook or Google as we see today. Not seeing the next slide, so I'm, that's where we are. Um, so, uh, so much efficiency was gained through the process of datafication. So it's, it's enabled an enormous information processing efficiencies, but we lost something very important. We lost fixity. We lost immutability, which is antithetical to the way that computerized information processing works. As archivists who have struggled for decades with the challenges of digital preservation can well attest to. As it turns out, immutability was a very important property of earlier media of communication in a human-oriented information processing world. It is this property that allows us to rely upon such media as evidence of past human activity. It is the basis upon which we can trust that information about such activities, that it's reliable and it has authenticity and it represents the past. When human communication is like shifting sand, as it is in this datafied world, it becomes very difficult to rely upon it and to trust that what it purports to be is actually what it is. Now, the great Canadian historian, Harold Innes, who happens to have been Marshall McLuhan's tutor, recognized this early on. Innes's writings on communication explore the role of media in shaping the culture and development of civilization. So it's not surprising that his student, Marshall McLuhan, should have come up with the, uh, the, the phrase, the medium is the message. So Innes argued that uh, the balance between oral and written forms of communication contributed to the flourishing of Greek civilization in the fifth century BC. He warned, however, that Western civilization is now imperiled by powerful advertising-driven media obsessed by present-mindedness and the continuous, systematic, ruthless, destruction of elements of permanence essential to cultural activity. Harold Innes's analysis of the effects of communication on the rise and fall of empires led him to warn grimly that Western civilization was now facing its own profound crisis. The development of powerful communications media such as mass circulation newspapers had shifted the balance decisively in favor of space and power over time community, and knowledge. The balance required for cultural survival had been upset by what Innes saw as mechanized communications media used to transmit information quickly over long distances. These media had contributed to an obsession with present-mindedness 
wiping out concerns about past or future. Now bear in mind that he was writing in the 1950s, but if we think about recent events, we could well you know, surmise that he was writing you know, this very day. So um, it's, it's really quite, um, quite sober, sobering to, to think. Um, he talked about you know, mass uh, media being newspapers, but you know, we can look at, at the Facebooks, advertising-driven um, uh, platforms uh, that we, we've become used to. So I would argue that Innes' observations about the loss of immutability presage the growing list of information-related risks, which I've studied throughout my career, uh, and uh, from computer hacks, uh, and, and now um, more recently, uh, voter manipulation that, that we see today. So enter the blockchain. Described as a distributed ledger with confirmed and validated blocks organized into an append-only chain using cryptographic links and designed to be tamper-resistant and to create final and definitive, aka immutable records. Now, I'm not going to go into the technical details of how blockchain works in this talk, but um, you can refer, I'll refer you to some of the things that I've written for more information about that. Um, but just capturing the essence of this is something that is meant to be by virtue of um, its distributed nature and combining um, cryptography to be tamper resistant and um, to produce final and definitive records. So those who describe blockchains as databases, I would maintain, and we had a little conversation about this before the, the talk, they're wrong. Blockchains are fundamentally different in nature from databases. They may rely on database technology to a certain ex extent, but their intention is completely different from the intention of a database. It's not efficiency and immutability, which is what databases have always delivered but immutability. The goal is very different. And as I mentioned, this turns out to be quite important, um, but it's also quite efficient, in inefficient, I should say, in many ways. So controversially, if we're talking about the public blockchain platform, Bitcoin, and the way that it um, confirms and validates blocks in, the, in this historical chain of, of, of truth, if you will, uh, it, it uses a mechanism called proof-of-work, um, sometimes referred to as mining, and it consumes an enormous quantity of energy, and so Bitcoin is often criticized for that. Um, so it's, it is inefficient in, in many ways, both from a, you know, in a positive perspective, uh, in, in that it doesn't allow for easy editability of records, but in also in this um, other way, which isn't quite so positive as it turns out in, in relation to energy consumption. So the blockchain is, is a, I would say, a perfect blending of the computational and the archival. As an object of study and discovery, it is quintessentially something that belongs to what I and several colleagues would call computational archival science. Uh, so I'll return to this topic later in my talk. It has a, uh, an archival goal that is computationally implemented. So it's this, this perfect blending. The new capabilities, which return immutability while still achieving many of the best properties of computerized information processing and communications, offer society a return to record keeping, a reverse datafication. 
And in this reversal, I would say there's hope, hope of renewed trust in the reliability and authenticity of human communications in this age of fake news, and in renewed hope about the trustworthy, uh, uh, renewed hope for humanity, because record keeping, as the great economist Hernando de Soto has observed, is the invisible <coughs> infrastructure that shapes and transforms society, even helping people around the world out of poverty, as in the case of people's ability to leverage land title records into capital that they can deploy to build businesses and provide them with a way to earn their living, which is what Hernando de Soto writes about principally, and, or to establish their identities in order to access food and services in the case of re refugees fleeing their homelands and leaving behind traditional identity documents as they do so. Now this is not to suggest that blockchain technology is perfect, it isn't. Much of what it promises to do, it still cannot achieve. So it's, it's overhyped. My project, Records in the Chain, which looks at um, the application of blockchain technology to record keeping, has undertaken several case studies of proposed blockchain solutions for record keeping, or pilots of those solutions, in areas such as healthcare records management, identity management, and land transaction recording. I found that the technology often over-promises and under-delivers on questions of accuracy, reliability, and authenticity, the ingredients for trustworthy records, and on solutions for long-term preservation of records. In my paper, Trusting Records, is blockchain technology the answer? I found that um, even though the solution aimed to prevent corrupt tampering with the um, uh, tampering with the Honduran land registry records, which is a problem in, in many under-resourced um, countries, the solution design, the, the actual implementation and solution design would likely have had the perverse outcome of legitimizing falsified land records. In most blockchain solutions I've reviewed, no link back to the context of a transaction records creation is maintained, thereby decontextualizing it and rendering it virtually useless as a source of evidence about a particular human activity. And in spite of claims of immutability, which might signal some notion of long-term permanence, most records created on chain today will likely not survive the latest hard fork, that is a permanent division in a blockchain, or the life of a particular platform, even though the blockchain uh, proponistas, as I'll call them, argue that the distributed nature of the blockchain embodies the locks principle, um, lots of copies keeps things safe. So we've got some thinking to do about um, distributed archival preservation and what that's going to look like. So these are the core properties. Um, in the research that I've done, I've looked at different types of uh, solutions. That what you see there below in the slide are, uh, is a typology of blockchain solutions that I've come up with. Uh, one is a mirror for um, assuring the integrity of, of, of records, um, native digital records. One is a, a, a type of blockchain system that actually produces blockchain records on-chain, so born, they're born as blockchain records. And the third one, which I call tokenized, actually uh, creates blockchain records but also transforms material assets into dematerialized um, 
tokens on, on a blockchain. So it accomplishes two things. And I've likened that back to the days of the medieval treasury when uh, we symbolize land transactions through the exchange of rings and knives and so on. So um, you can uh, read about that in, in another paper. I won't go into further detail here. Um, okay, so that's just a little bit more on the records in the chain project and uh, what uh, are the questions are that we're exploring. And um, this is the taxonomy of trust, which is based on archival theory and, and diplomatic theory um, coming out of the Interpares project um, in, in large part, but not exclusively. Uh, and um, what we're using to evaluate these blockchain solutions. And so this area that I have circled here, questions of identity um, around the, the authors of records, because blockchain systems are in their raw form, like the Bitcoin public blockchain pseudonymous systems, there's no identity layer actually natively built into them. We've got problems of identifying who the creator, uh, author of the record is. And then also the question of this archival bond linked back to the context, which you need to establish the unique identity of the record itself as a representation of, of um, uh, facts about acts. And then long-term preservation, well, that's, uh, that's an open question as well. All right, so let me move on then to um, the question of decentralization or distribution, what I'll call the great sharding of the record. Okay, so this is another process that I, I believe we're undergoing that like datafication is fundamentally transforming the record. And I define um, this process, the great sharding of the record, as a process whereby components of the record, its content, context, and form are pulled apart or distributed both organizationally and uh, at the technological level. So first let us consider the organizational distribution of the record and its impact, which I would argue uh, is the key source of 20th century debates that archivists have been having about the principle of provenance and respect des fonds which I'm sure you know, archivists amongst you will be well familiar with. These debates have, I maintain, arisen because processes giving rise to transactions represented by records, which once were undertaken by a single creator whose will was executed in one fell swoop from beginning to end, began to shard because of uh, processes of specialization and distribution, which essentially were um, brought into the fore for reasons of efficient processing. Uh, these process have ha processes have been um, recounted by the likes of Adam Smith and reified in the bureaucratic processes described by Weber and Taylor. Uh, these transformations in the organization of human activity atomized processes in the same way as records have been atomized by datification in order to achieve this greater efficiency in production. As a consequence of this, once singular processes were broken apart and performed by a series of different actors who carried out not their own will, but the will of a bureaucratic overlord. As processes, as, as time passed and specialized organizational units emerged to perform specific parts of larger processes, more organizational units began to participate in the creation of the record. And as these units came and went, were created, restructured, and or destroyed, tracing the provenance of a body of records, the archival fonds, 
back to a single creator became more complex. Indeed, debates arose as to whether such records could or should be attributed to a single creator, challenging archival descriptive systems that privilege the single creator view of the record and giving rise to competing systems that trace the lineage of archival records according to function, such as the Australian series system. These transformations, I, I would maintain, led to the emergence of the notion of what the Italian archivist Giorgio Cinchetti writing in the 1930s called the archival bond, which I've referred to previously in the taxonomy of trust, or as it's come to be translated into English, and what the English archivist Sir Hilary Jenkinson, writing contemporaneously to Cinchetti, simply referred to more generically as a relationship to the context of document creation. Given that both archivists were experiencing the same transformative organizational phenomena, it is not surprising that they simultaneously felt the need for and derived a principle that intellectually bound together for purposes of preserving the evidentiary affordances of records, that which modern bureaucracy had rendered asunder. Typically, the archival bond was achieved, as Jenkinson wrote in his Manual of Archival Administration, by a little writing added to um, added to or attached to the document. So the first example of metadata. Recent innovations in information and communications technologies have further sharded the record. Now, with internet communications, organizations have been able to spread their operations out globally with actors working in coordinated fashion on atomized bits and pieces of work of the organization from across the globe. So like outsourcing as an example, Moreover, these same capabilities as the information theorists Luciano Floridi and my colleague at UBC Mark David Seidel observe have given rise to new organizational forms. So Mark David Seidel calls these C-form organizations. And they're open, fluid, and highly distributed. Establishing who records creators are in the context of such distributed forms of the organization of human activity has further taxed archivist principles. These changes explain, in my view, a rising call to abandon hierarchical forms of arrangement and description to embrace new networked or graph-based forms of archival arrangement and description. And here I'd cite the work of uh, my former colleague Giovanni Macchetti and Ken Thibodeau. Uh, and we published a book together uh, on provenance. And, and so the, some of these ideas are, can be found there. Now, aside from these processes of distributed human activity, highly distributed computerized information processing has given rise to even more sharding of the record. Distributed computing has enabled, been enabled by the process of datafication that I previously mentioned. Once atomization of the record can be achieved, it's possible to segment and specialize components of computerized information systems in the same fashion as human organizational activity has been segmented and specialized. We might think of this as the bureaucratization of computerized information systems, which has resulted in highly distributed information systems architectures of the type we see today, wherein components located on networked computers communicate and coordinate their actions by passing messages and in which the components interact with each other in order to achieve a common goal. Blockchain technology provides the ultimate example of such a distributed architecture. Not only are copies of the ledger distributed across tens of thousands of computer nodes, but components of the records themselves may be scattered across several different computerized systems. 
Um, and as an example, uh, in a recent case study we completed of land transaction recording on uh, the blockchain in um, three countries, Honduras, Brazil, and Sweden, we found that signatures that were once an integral part of the record in the paper record keeping environment are needed to authorize and needed to authorize and establish the authenticity of the record are no longer an integral part of the record, but occur as part of a complex process of cryptographic signing of a hash, which is a fixed length number of cryptographic, uh, cryptographically generated from input data to produce uh, sort of like a fingerprint of, uh, of data. So this, this hash of, of the record and uh, recording that that, that's then recorded digitally and signed into the blockchain uh, by bundling it with other digitally signed transaction record hashes and then that entire block is signed. So to be fair, since the advent of digital signatures in their more traditional form, the signature itself has been a separate digital object. Nevertheless, it was still bundled together and cryptographically linked to the content of the record, although in some cases it may also be stored as a separate object, like XML. But what's different with the blockchain is that the authorizing signature may no longer be stored in the same place as the content of what it is authorizing, and it may further live an independent life on thousands of computer nodes around the world. So um, it's much more distributed and sharded than the traditional digital signature. So these highly distributed forms of computerized information processing call upon record keepers to commit what I call acts of bondage. <laughs> so and try and search for a visual to go with that. It was very unfortunate. I'll get very difficult Google ads, I'm sure, for a very long time now. <laughs> In other words, to take uh, steps to hold together that which distributed human and information processing renders apart. So my research on blockchain record keeping systems suggests that there are several acts of bondage that we now need to concentrate on uh, as, as record keepers in this new distributed world. So there's the traditional archival bond, the links to the procedural context of the record and between other records implicated in the same procedure. Um, there's something that I will call, and these are all still emergent ideas, so the names are not really fixed, but something I'll call a recording bond, which is a bond between the record and the writer of the record, which may in fact be a machine or a platform, not a human, as we're used to thinking about the writer of the record. So an example of this would be Twitter uh, as, a, as a writer of a, of a record, not the author, but the writer. Um, a third bond might be something I'll call the chain of preservation bond, and I think there's more work to be done here because I'm really conceiving of this as a bond between the record, okay, an originary record at time t, so t0, let's say, and all the other versions or manifestations of that same record at subsequent times, so t1, t2, t3. And we can have, again, a graph forming because you can have so many different manifestations and versions of those manifestations. And there's a relationship between all of these. And I would call it sort of a chain of preservation that brings it all together. Uh, however granularly you define you know, each of these increments of time. Then there's something that we might call a bond of integrity, which would be the bond between a record and that version or manifestation of the record such as a hash in a blockchain that's created to establish its integrity. OK, 
okay, to determine, to, to, to demonstrate that it hasn't actually been tampered with uh, in the case of the blockchain at the bit structure level. There's something I might uh, call the author authorial bond, and this relates to what I was just talking about in, in terms of digital signatures. So that's the link, uh, links of the author, between the author or authors of the record to the record that the author has actually created. And um, which is important because if the author, the authorial um, signature is somewhere on some infrastructure far away from the content, you need to, you need to link the two to establish the authenticity of the record. Uh, there's also something what I, which I don't have on this slide, but would refer to as the bond of time. So um, typically to authenticate the record, you'd need to link it to um, a point in time. And uh, most records will have a date um, to establish their, their authenticity, and it's one of the ways we can determine their um, authenticity. So we need some kind of link between um, maybe system time, but also human or calendar time. And, and these are often established in blockchain systems by uh, time stamping with the system time, uh, the blocks, but also by publishing the hashes of the blocks out to uh, some sort of represent, something that you can track human time, like a newspaper, or tweeting them out. Um, so, and then finally, there's something we might call to in, um, refer to in tokenized uh, blockchain record-keeping systems as an artifactual bond. It's kind of that, um, the, the bond that uh, Sir Hilary Jenkinson referred to and was talking about um, the elephant as a potential record. So it's the link between the record as the representation of the transaction that this physical entity was involved in and the physical entity itself, which in the blockchain world has been dematerialized and tokenized. Um, so, so there, there could be, um, you know, a, the, a link, for example, to, you know, an ancient charter and uh, a knife or a ring that represented the, the land transaction and, and the charter that subsequently was made to, to, to document that, that transfer, to, to give a, a, an early example of, to relate to. So these are all different types of bonds and we need active acts of bondage to um, create what would be trustworthy records in this new distributed environment. There's one final bond which isn't necessarily needed to establish the authenticity of records, but I think is becoming an increasingly important bond to maybe think about in the current record-keeping environment that we find ourselves in, and that's the last one, the subject bond. So why would we need to acknowledge and establish a subject bond? What purpose would it serve? As we now live in an age where we, as subjects in records, have become the product, the data about us has become a global commodity, as I mentioned. There's growing concern about how this data is going to be used, about our privacy, and also about our self-determination and individual freedom of choice. People are demanding to have control over their data as ontological representations of themselves, if we adhere to the thinking of philosophers like Luciana Floridi. In Canada, many First Nations peoples who've testified against the atrocities of the Indian residential school system feel further violated by the fact that statements they made in confidence and expected to remain private could be placed in public archives. 
Increasingly, people want a right to be forgotten. As reflected in discussions about out-of-home care in Australia, there are mounting calls for more thought and accountability in the way that records relating to these experiences are created, managed, preserved, and accessible. This growing information rights ecology, to use the words of Elizabeth Shepherd at UCL, means that increasingly archivists must review records for personal information. As defined in our privacy legislation, whatever that might be, so general data protection regulations or you know, BC where I come from, privacy and freedom of information legislation, I believe that this may ultimately create a further sharding of the record as personal information excoriated from the content of some records or as uh, individuals uh, demand more control of the content of records of which they are the subject. And I actually don't think this is a bad thing. I believe that individuals should have more control over the representations of themselves in data. As such, data essentially functions as extensions of the self. This is uh, part and parcel of human freedom and self-determination. But how is it possible to achieve this kind of control? I believe that personally identifiable information must become another explicit component of the record and be subject to independent control by the subject of the, of the record. And I see possibility to achieve this in, in blockchain technology and I've just started a project working with uh, healthcare service providers, um, which is one of the things I'm going to Frankfurt uh, tomorrow, t this evening, tomorrow morning to speak about, is how to use blockchain technology to give individuals more, uh, greater control over their own health data and the ability to actively consent and control who can use that data for whatever purposes, managing their own health or whether it's research and so on. So I won't go into detail about how we're planning to implement this or how it might be achieved, and there's many open research questions around this, but I do see some possibility here. So, um, so further sharding of the, the record, but um, perhaps you know, in the service of, of humanity here. So, then to the future of archives. Um, so, as mentioned, blockchain technology uh, returns to human communications the highly important property of immutability that computerized information processing in its early manifestations took away. But it's not just information processing that humanity is, um, needs and is searching for immutability. It's also in regard to our very existence. In his book, Homo Deus, Yuval Nora Harari writes that the human project is to become godlike. We seek bliss and immortality. We seek to fly close to the sun like Icarus. We seek, perhaps, divinity. Harari argues that there are three trajectories towards this future for mankind. First is bioengineering, wherein we use biological engineering, like genomics, uh, to identify and edit um, and solve human genetic problems. Harari writes, quote, biological engineers start with the insight that we are far from realizing the full potential of our organic bodies. For four billion years, natural selection has been tweaking and tinkering with these bodies, so we've gone from amoeba to reptiles to mammals to sapiens. Yet there's no reason to think that sapiens is the last station. Relatively small changes to genes, hormones, and neutrons 
are enough to transform Homo erectus, who could produce nothing more impressive than flint knives, into Homo sapiens, who produces spaceships and computers. Who knows what might be the outcome of a few more changes to our DNA, hormonal system, or brain structure? Bioengineering is not going to wait patiently for natural selection to work its magic. Instead, bioengineers will take the old sapien's body and intentionally rewrite its genetic code, rewire its brain circuits, alter its biochemical balance, and even grow entirely new limbs." End quote. Now, uh, the second trajectory is what Harari calls cyborg engineering which combines an organic controller, a human brain, for example, with an inorganic component to replace elements of the human body. So here I'm quoting Harari again. Cyborg engineering will go a step further, merging the organic body with non-organic devices such as bionic hands, artificial eyes, or millions of nanorobots that will navigate our bloodstream, diagnose problems, and repair damage. Such a cyborg could enjoy abilities far beyond those of any organic body. For example, all parts of an organic body must be in direct content with one, contact with one another in order to function. If an elephant's brain is in India, its eyes and ears in China, and its feet in Australia, then that elephant right now is probably dead. Um, even if in some mysterious sense it can, can sense uh, be alive, hear or walk. Uh, so it's kind of like the... Um, material, uh, organic version of, the of, of acts of bondage for the records, you know, holding all the bits together and it still functions as a whole. Uh, Harari says a cyborg, in contrast, could exist in numerous places at the same time. So if you think of it, this is the same process as distribution and networking that allows for the atomization, manipulation, and recombination of, of the record. And here, Harari's applying it to the human body. So the third and final trajectory that Harari speaks about is the engineering of completely inorganic beings. He writes, yet even cyborg engineering is relatively conservative inasmuch as it assumes that organic brains will go on being the command and control centers of human life. A bolder approach dispenses with organic parts altogether and hopes to engineer complete non-organic beings. Neural networks will be replaced with intelligent software which could surf both virtual and non-virtual worlds, free from the limitations of organic chemistry. After four billion years of wandering inside the kingdom of organic compounds, life will break out into the vastness of the inorganic realm and will take shapes that we cannot envisage even in our wildest dreams. After all, our wildest dreams are still the product of organic chemistry. So let's think about the implications of these developments for uh, the human record, uh, and for the role of, uh, of archivists and archives in the creation and preservation of the human record. So DNA is the organic record for the human body. As we become masters of its writing and editing, who and how will, ensure, how will we ensure the authenticity and long-term preservation of this organic record? Traditional archivists working in traditional archival repositories most likely will not become repositories of human DNA, nor are they likely to have responsibility for its creation, management, and preservation. However, archival science, as an independent scientific discipline, 
with principles and theories pertaining to the creation, management, and preservation of all forms of records, whether inorganic or organic, may well provide insights that would be helpful to humanity to preserve and trace these records of humanity itself. In terms of cyborg engineering, these types of human machine systems, which um, some places you hear them referred to as C2 systems, command and control systems, because it comes out of like military um, operations, they're rapidly becoming part of our everyday existence. I mean, think of how reliant we are just on our smartphones and you know, other devices. But think also about semi-autonomous vehicles, um, you know, Teslas, which are most, uh, mostly self-driving, but over which humans may still exercise some level of control. Or think about machine learning algorithms or neural networks that largely function autonomously, but which are designed by humans to execute a human will of some sort. Then, think about the possibility of things going wrong. Um, this happened recently where Tesla crashed into um, the side of a, a motorway in, um, in Los Angeles and killed the engineer who wasn't driving it, the car was driving, but he had like seven seconds to take it over um, before things went badly wrong and well, it didn't work out. Um, so if car crashes, it must be determined whether the cause was human, machine, or the interface between the human and the machine. Or in algorithms that wreak havoc in financial markets because of the way that they've been designed or that increase in inequality and discrimination for the same reason. How will you determine the causes of such unintended or bad outcomes if not for being able to turn to some fixed facts about acts in which we can place our trust and on which to base our analyses? I've written elsewhere about the need to build record keeping into such uh, C2 type systems to enable us to understand where fault lies and to make reparations to humans and machines. Uh, it's a, a, an article called Building Accountability into Cognitive Systems. Um, this, by the way, is a challenge in a society where for commercial reasons these algorithms are increasingly black boxed, but the problem may be overcome by first building in record keeping and then by enabling access to these records, much as the black box data recorders on airplanes can be accessed following a crash. We must push for this capability and make it a legal requirement. Again, designing such systems will not be the purview of the traditional archivist or record keeper, but the principles of archival science and prospective, prospective engineering branch, potentially, of archival science, call it archival engineering, if you will, may lay the foundation we need. In terms of a completely inorganic uh, future being, the uh, question becomes one of pro providing this being with a memory. If you think that the purpose of archives will still be to preserve human communication for human beings in 50 years, you may want to consider that already machine-to-machine -machine communications outstrip human-to-human -human communications by orders of magnitude. Um, and here I will just turn to this slide, and I captured you know, the exponential increase in machine-to-machine -machine communications. Um, and uh, human organic memory is, is fallible. Some argue that it's merely the result of a constant hallucination. So will inorganic beings have a more reliable memory in the same way as they will be less susceptible to all things that plague us like disease, famine, fires, and other natural disasters like climate change? All things that limit our existence because of the fr fragility of organic bodies and which may be the impetus for gradually becoming more and more inorganic. 
to protect ourselves from these kinds of susceptibilities. This brings us back to the need for that important capability that we lost or at least undermined when we began using computers for information processing, immutability. The new inorganic being requires a distributed, highly redundant and resilient and most importantly immutable form of memory for the data that it processes. Again, archival principles and theories may inform the development of such memory. Now, at this point, you may be gasping in horror <laughs> at this dystopian future of inorganic cyborg beings wandering about, thinking that you wouldn't want to be um, part of it, um, and that you would certainly not want archival science to play any part in its formation. Yet, it's already too late. The horse is bolted from the barn. These developments are taking play, place and, and we have to engage with them. It's not too late to shape the future, to imbue it with our values and with the principles and theories of archival science. Better this than bury our heads in the sand and await our fate, likely to be irrelevancy. So back to the topic of computational archival science. These developments lead me to suggest that we now need to work towards this new transdiscipline, as I'll call it, of archi computational archival science. And um, it has, I would maintain, three fundamental characteristics. It will fundamentally rest upon both archival theory and the theories informing computational systems um, from the disciplines of computer science and engineering. It will not primarily be applied to the representation, exploration, or preservation of archival material in any traditional sense, but to the creation, management, and represent representation, exploration, and preservation of the record and collectivities of the records, our archives, in a variety of non-traditional, even yet to be envisaged settings like command and control systems and inorganic beings. Its primary focus will be on the question of immutability or the counteracting of the centripetal forces acting upon the important capability called recordness. I've elsewhere written about this emergent characteristic of the property of uh, information systems, um, this notion of recordness as an emergent property of such systems. Um, and I believe, as I've mentioned here today, that it's a very important capability that we do need to think about engineering into these systems. So um, I'll just conclude by saying that um, with this perhaps alarming vision of the future of archives, um, I'm going to uh, open it up for questions and, and comments. And these are still very emergent um, ideas, ideas and in formation. So I'll be really interested to have your for your reactions. And um, I'll just give a shout out to um, the uh, IEEE Big Data Computational Archival Science Workshop, which um, is co-chaired by my colleague Mark Hedges at King's College London. And I, I believe you're going to be doing something collaboratively with, with Mark coming up at um, the end of August. Uh, and there should be another call for papers. And so we very, um, we'd be delighted to have papers from, from colleagues here uh, to continue the discussion on whether computational archival science is necessary, uh, what it is, because it's still a transdiscipline in, in formation, uh, and its, you know, its boundaries and, and, and what emerging theories might come out of it. 
So thank you very much for your attention and I'll turn it over to, I guess, John now to open it up for questions. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence. 